Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 1. If one be found slain in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it, lying in the field, and it be not known who hath smitten him. Moses is saying, if you find somebody who was murdered, and they're outside of a city, and you have no clue who murdered them. Two, then thy elders and thy judges shall come forth, and they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. The elders of Israel will come and they'll conduct an investigation to find out which city the murdered body is closest to. They're going to figure that the city that body is closest to is the city that has the guilty person. 3. And it shall be that the city which is nearest unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd, which hath not been wrought with, and which hath not drawn in the yoke. Now that they've pinpointed what city is to blame, but they still have no clue who did the murder, now the elders of that city are responsible for providing a heifer out of the herd, which is a virgin cow. And it has also never had a yoke on it, so it's going to be a young heifer. The fact that it never had babies will symbolize that the owners of the heifer, which is the city, have never profited from it because they haven't really got milk or offspring from it. That's good because if you're going to make atonement for sin, you don't want to profit from that. It's all for God. Four, and the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, which may neither be plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. This is not a sacrifice because the animal was not brought to the altar. This is vengeance for the death of the human. Somebody has to pay the price. And when we sin, somebody has to pay for it. In the Old Testament, it was an innocent animal. In the New Testament, under the New Covenant, it's Jesus Christ who paid the price for our sin. Now, in this case, you don't know who the sinner is because they've escaped notice. But because God is a holy God, there still has to be some sort of price paid. God doesn't allow human sacrifice because humans are sinners, and therefore a sinful person cannot atone for another person's sin. He only allows animal sacrifices because it has to be innocent. I'm sure the heifer went straight to heaven. Her neck gets broken because this isn't a sacrifice which was performed by draining the blood. In this case, it's vindication for the slain. There wouldn't be an avenger of blood because nobody knows who committed the murder. The avenger of blood has nobody to kill. They bring it down into a rough valley for a few reasons. One is because the blood goes into the soil, they don't want to profit from that soil. It's like blood money. So they put it in an area where they could never plow or sow. Also, it goes down into the valley into a rough place where the other cattle would not want to go. And that way, the other cattle won't go and mourn for it. Because cows do mourn for their dead, in case you didn't know. And it's laid out, it's not buried, it's not burned or anything. And this shows disrespect, because we don't respect a murderer, but the heifer is paying the price for the murderer. But it also allows the scavenger animals to go and eat the carcass. God is providing food for the scavenger animals in the rough valley where no person or regular cattle would go. If they never find the murderer, then that valley will never be used for cultivation, but it's probably not going to get used anyway just because of the nature of the rocks and the roughness.
5. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him, and to bless in the name of the Lord, and according to their word shall every controversy and every stroke be. It's the Levites who determine punishments and all of that. 6. And all the elders of that city who are nearest unto the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Because usually if you get murdered, you get murdered by somebody you know. But in this case, they have no idea who did it, and all the elders are saying they didn't do it. So the elders that are closest of kin to the man, which would be the most likely guilty parties, they're claiming innocence. They will wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And this shows that they're innocent of the heifer's blood, and they're innocent of the victim's blood, because they didn't have any knowledge of it. When Pilate washed his hands before the people when he condemned Christ, he was trying to tell the people that he was innocent of Jesus' blood, because he knew that Jesus did not deserve to be crucified. But in Pilate's case, it doesn't work, because the only way you can wash your hands of something is if you don't have any knowledge of it. But Pilate actually had knowledge that Jesus was innocent, so he couldn't wash his hands of that guilt. So by washing his hands of Jesus being crucified, it didn't mean anything to God. But in this case, the elders are correctly claiming innocent because they don't know anything about how the man was murdered. 7. And they shall speak and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. 8. Forgive, O Lord, thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and suffer not innocent blood to remain in the midst of thy people Israel, and the blood shall be forgiven them. The blood of the man who was murdered went into the soil outside the city, and that's what they're asking cleansing from. 9. So shalt thou put away the innocent blood from the midst of thee, when thou shalt do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord. God doesn't want anybody murdered. He wants everybody to live a long life, to serve him, and to go to heaven. So God is the one who was offended the most by all of this. It was his creature, a man, who he loved, and he didn't want that man to die. 10. When thou goest forth to battle against thine enemies, and the Lord thy God delivereth them into thy hands, and thou carriest them away captive, this is when you win a battle and you take POWs. 11. And seest among the captives a woman of goodly form, and thou hast a desire unto her, and wouldst take her to thee to wife, and she's a POW. 12. Then thou shalt bring her home to thy house, and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. Now this doesn't mean trim her nails. This means let her nails grow wild. Because in ancient times, this was a sign of sorrow for the dead. Because obviously her family has already died. So she has a right to mourn. She shaves her head. She lets her nails grow. Because all of that is for the mourning process. That's what she would want to do. If she wasn't taken captive, she would still be shaving her head and letting her nails grow. God is honoring the emotions and the sorrow of the captive woman. 13. And she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off her, and shall remain in thy house, and bewell her father and her mother a full month. And after that thou mayest go in unto her, and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. Put the clothing of her captivity from off her. That means to give her new clothing that does not remind her of her former life where she worshipped idols. And for a full month she's allowed to mourn and nobody touches her. 
Then when the month is over, you can take her for a wife. 14. And it shall be, if thou have no delight in her, then thou shalt let her go whither she will. But thou shalt not sell her at all for money, for thou shalt not deal with her as a slave, because thou hast humbled her. God is saying, because you already took her virginity, if you decide you don't want her to be your wife anymore, you're divorcing her. You need to make it easy for her to start a new life, because you owe her the respect of having been your wife. She cannot be a slave, and you have to allow her to go wherever she wants to go if you don't want to keep her. 15. If a man have two wives, the one beloved and the other hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated, and if the firstborn son be hers that was hated. Now, why would this even happen? As we know, everything was different back then when it came to women and children. All of their values were very different from ours. They weren't into polygamy because they were sex perverts. That wasn't it at all. Today, male polygamists are basically perverted men who just want to have a bunch of women and pretend it's legal. But back then, polygamy had a purpose. And now I'm not saying it was right because God definitely does not prefer it in the Bible. But children were of such high value Children made your wealth. The more kids you had, the more wealthy you would be because your kids became your company of co-workers from a business perspective because they will plant your vineyards and all that stuff. So the more children you have, the richer you get. And women found their value in how many kids they had and whether they had male sons for natural reasons because children equaled wealth. They weren't optional. Like today, everybody wants to use birth control. Not in these ancient times. Birth control would have considered the stupidest choice you could ever make. Because everybody wanted kids. Some people were so desperate to have children and to have more children that they would actually have multiple wives. It's really amazing that God made Abraham as rich as he was and Abraham only had one wife. Now he did have Hagar for a short time, but that was not a good idea. It wasn't God's choice. And she only had one son and then she was sent away. It's an incredible miracle how rich Abraham became with just one son. Now also, this isn't malicious hate. This means that this is the wife who isn't pretty, who you're not attracted to. If the favorite wife happens to be the second wife, that's what this is talking about. 7. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the hated, by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. God says, even if the firstborn comes from your not favorite wife, that firstborn still gets all the rights, just as if they were from the favorite wife. You can't let the second wife usurp the first wife. 18. If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son that will not hearken to the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they chasten him, will not hearken unto them. This would be like a drunkard son. It could also be somebody who's belligerent and violent, somebody who's completely out of control. And even though they've tried to discipline him, it hasn't had any good effect. And he is still wild, reckless, and most likely a drunkard. 19. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of the city and unto the gate of his place. This is like a highly dysfunctional person that just wreaks havoc in the family and the community. 20. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He doth not hearken to our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now a glutton means that you overeat, but in this case, it means he overdrinks. When you're addicted to alcohol, it does make you do terrible things. I once had a neighbor that was a super sweet man. 
but when he got drunk, he did terrible things. And he was ashamed of it the next day because I could hear, because they were screaming so loud, I could hear everything. He was embarrassed by his behaviors, but he couldn't stop because of his drunkenness. And that's the situation that God is talking about here. Somebody who's incapable of changing their behaviors. 21. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die. So shalt thou put away the evil from the midst of thee, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now what was the evil? It was becoming an alcoholic. Alcoholism is not in your genes. It's a sin that we have to repent of. But when it grips you, it takes control of you. You can't control yourself. That's why it's so dangerous. And if they let that young man live, then he'll teach alcoholism to all of his friends because that's what alcoholics tend to do. They want to serve all their friends drinks. And then there'll be a whole gang of alcoholics and then it will just spread. And that's why God said to put him to death so that it doesn't spread. 22. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree. 23. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt surely bury him the same day. For he that is hanged is a reproach unto God, that thou defile not thy land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. If somebody deserved the death penalty, and they were hung as their punishment, it's a defilement to the land for a human body to hang like that. So they have to be buried before nightfall. That concludes Deuteronomy chapter 21.